Today's scripture reading is from James 3, 13 to 4, 12. Who among you is wise in understanding? By his good conduct, he should show by that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse you hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. On to the preaching of God's word. So last week, Pastor Chris, uh, preaching from the second chapter of the book of James, he highlighted how people were challenged who may argue that there is little to no relationship between what someone believes and how someone lives. That that person may say something like, hey, it's faith that matters, not works. In explaining the text, Pastor Chris said, hey, there, there is a relationship between faith and works. And he made the statement, authentic faith transforms. Which leads to a question. What kind of transformation would we expect to encounter in someone with authentic faith? What type of works would we encounter? So in the text prior, prior to the section we're exploring this morning, it highlights how we would expect someone to speak, how we would expect them to use their tongue, how that person would talk with authentic faith. This morning, we're going to consider how authentic faith plays out in our hearts, our internal disposition, and how that character forms how we relate to one another and how we relate to God. James is making the point that not, not everyone who claims the name of Christ submits to Christ. Or not everyone who claims to hear the voice of God actually hears the voice of God. 
In the passage read earlier, the author asks the question, who among you is wise and understanding? He is asking individuals who claim to hear from God to raise their hand. Now on one hand, on on one side of things, he's asking folks who are really self-confident. Those of you who think you are special, more wise and understanding than the average person in the church to step forward. If this is you, this message is especially for you, okay? But by the way, if you're thinking this message is especially for someone else, if you claim to have that wisdom and understanding this morning, this message is for you too. Now on the other hand, on the other hand, those who are wise and understanding, that, that should be everyone who professes to be a Christian. If I have surrendered to Christ, there is a wisdom and understanding that I claim to possess. But by asking the question and providing an explanation of the answer, James is saying to us all, just because you claim to hear from God, that alone does not verify you have done so. It doesn't indicate whether or not someone has surrendered to Christ. So how do we verify the identity of a Christian? The the title of the sermon this morning is Identity Verification. Now, the broader culture, to, to verify someone's identity, there is information you provide, like your social security number, your birth date, or there are specific security questions you sometimes answer. What's your mother's maiden name? Uh, Who was your best friend from high school? What was the name of your first pet? And when answering that question, I can never remember. Did I put my first toad, my first dog, my family's first dog? That question, what, what was your hometown growing up? If you were a military kid, you have no idea how to answer that question. Now, now to verify we are not a robot or some artificial intelligence, there are the pictures, select everything that has a motorcycle in it or select everything that has a sidewalk. If those pictures are intended to differentiate between artificial intelligence and an actual human, if you're like me, you're recognized as human less than half the time. (laughs) So the, the point of these safeguards is to verify identity and recognize potential fraud. Now, if you were to come up with a list of criteria or or security questions to to verify the authenticity of faith in the life of an individual, what would you include? Courageously sharing one's faith and one's conviction? Knowledge of Bible verses? I mean, someone who's a Christian has to know John 3.16. Someone who is self-confident, Someone who who is always smiling? Or would it be more like a list that James is about to provide? To to verify the identity of a Christian, he's going to provide us with a list of virtues or characteristics that serve to verify the identity of a Christian. He's going to describe the kind of life one lives who is surrendered to Christ. And he's going to provide us with a list of vices, characteristics that trigger a a sort of fraud alert, fake, that's inconsistent with the Christian faith. The contrast of these characteristics will highlight our big idea this morning. 
Authentic Christianity is not centered on self. It surrenders self. So if you have your Bibles or Bible apps, go ahead and open them up to the passage read earlier. It's kind of a long passage. When Doug Logan came, we ended up combining two passages into one that we were set to preach. So thank you, Doug Logan. We're going to work our way, we'll do our best to work our way through this passage slowly and observe these characteristics that point to authentic Christianity and inauthentic Christianity. So the first contrast examines our inner disposition. In verses 13 through 17 in chapter 3, James contrasts the type of character and conduct possessed by one type of individual using the language gentleness, peace-loving, full of mercy, with the type of character and conduct possessed by another, using the language bitter envy and selfish ambition. So I think we see one internal disposition is calm, and the other is chaotic. Here's, Here's what I mean. Gentleness is calm because it has nothing to prove. That that word gentleness, it means to have a mild disposition or a gentle spirit. It is someone who is approachable, who listens well, who doesn't cut others off, who asks all sorts of questions, even when encountering people that he or she may disagree with. The type of character they demonstrate is not arrogant or bold or brash. It does not self-promote. It does not seek to serve self. It does not even serve or pursue self-protection. If anything, because the person with gentleness has nothing to prove, it opens the door to being vulnerable and hurt and wounded. This person surrenders self. On the other hand, A fraud alert is triggered when someone is seeking to make more of self. In identifying bitter envy and selfish ambition, the author is describing how being centered on self, it it can play out in one of two ways. With envy, that heart centered on self, it is a heart that is constantly complaining. This is the person where self-focus takes the form of self-pity or woe is me. For this person, there is great power in being a victim. They are defined by feeling left out. The possessions they have, what they experience, they are never enough when compared to others. And the suffering they experience, they can only see that they always have more suffering than others. Now the other way a heart centered on self plays out James says, is through selfish ambition. These people tend to view themselves very highly, perhaps as the strongest or wisest or most mature Christian in the room. They tend to think they do not have much to learn from others. They have a high view of their gifting and calling, and they want others to know about it. James is indicating how the church is not immune to the problem of something called narcissism. 
people who claim the name of Christ, they can very much be about self. That, that person could be the man or woman sitting next to you. It could even be you. Here's pastor and author Chuck DeGroat describing the narcissist. He is turned inward and enamored by his own image. A narcissist, in other words, is a self-worshipper. He may be the image-driven salesman or the arrogant entrepreneur, the success-addicted pastor or the self-interested politician, the PTA president or the internet blogger. Narcissism comes in many forms. He's generally self-assured and certainly polished and professional. And she's often bold and brazen, showy and strong. This person centered on self, who, who claims to be wise and understanding, who claims to have a direct line to God, he or she twists the word of God or uses apparent divine authority, not in a way that surrenders self or in a way that points to Christ, but, but to point to something that he or she wants to do. James is exposing a dirty secret. Some can use the apparent call of God not as a call to sacrifice self, but to serve self. People can engage in church practices to bolster self. People can use the church as a way to consume, to acquire personal pleasure and personal comfort. When you hear someone using the language, God is calling me or God is telling me to do something he or she really wants to do, that fraud alert should be going off. Really? Did, did God really tell you to take that job you wanted to take? Did God really tell you to date that guy you wanted to date? That interpretation you landed on how the Bible teaches about gender or marriage or how the church should be governed or the roles of men and women in culture or in the church, did you really get there through understanding the word of God or twisting or manipulating the word of God to make it what you wanted it to say? I said that earlier, the inner disposition of inauthentic Christianity is less calm and more chaotic. It's hard to have a gentle disposition when you are centered on self. There is a baseline level of insecurity because you're trying to prove yourself. You're trying to validate yourself. You feel like others are taking something from you that you deserve maybe attention or approval or respect. There is wisdom from above that you are valued, how precious you are in God's sight, that you lack. In verse 15, James says, such wisdom, the wisdom that produces envy and selfish ambition, it does not come down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. This wisdom and knowledge that seeks to promote a high view of self. It is wisdom from somewhere, but rather than a word from the heavens, it is a word rooted in earthly things. Rather than a word from the spirit, it is a word from the unspiritual. Rather than a word from the divine, it is a word from the demonic. Telling you that you aren't enough that you have to prove yourself, that God has deprived you and you need more. When people claim to be wise and understanding, to verify their identity as a Christian, James says, look at their character and conduct. 
It, it verifies their identity. When they seek to surrender self, they point to Christ. When they seek to make more of self, they point to the demonic. Authentic Christianity is not centered on self, it surrenders self. So that demeanor plays out in an inner disposition. Now let's look at how it plays out in how we relate to others or how we relate to community. What we're going to see here, the contrast that James will provide is a person who draws people with differences together with a person who divides people with differences apart. Here's him describing drawing people with differences together in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Authentic Christianity produces compassion. Someone who seeks to listen and seeks to understand. This person seeks to honor others, even when others disagree with him or her, even when others may hurt him or her, or would wound him or her. In the midst of disagreement, this person seeks to cultivate peace. Now, there are some who claim today the way to make peace when encountering opposition is to make war. It is to ridicule and belittle one's opponents. It is to use forms of sarcasm and scorn with how one speaks. James seems to disagree. Rather than lead with war, rather than lead with violence, the wisdom from above, it, it is rooted and firm, but it is gentle and full of mercy. James says when encountering the opposite, James says when encountering the opposite, when there is an absence of peace in the community, that should trigger a fraud alert. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. So a fraud alert is triggered when looking at how one engages in community and one finds individuals who quarrel with one another. Maybe it's the color of the carpet. Maybe it's the, about the type of music played during the worship service. Maybe it's about not feeling seen or valued. Maybe it's about the way a church reinforces particular teachings, how a church does membership, how Christians should engage culture, or the types of creeds and professions used during worship, or the type of education a church supports for children. What causes that conflict? Or what causes that division in the church? See, many of us, when we think about the source of conflict, we like to think it's the brokenness of others that causes the conflict. Or we like to think it's the lack of conflict resolution strategies that we possess. We maybe have not been trained in win-win-win conflict resolution as many were eloquently introduced to when watching The Office. James argues the source of conflict. It's not, it's not others. It's not a lack of conflict resolution strategies or, or it's not even the things we disagree about. The, the source of conflict oftentimes in community is self-interest and self-promotion. 
Rather than surrendering personal passions or personal convictions or personal preferences, those become a source of division and disruption. James offers more on the conflict experienced within a church in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So in addition to causing quarrels, James says inauthentic Christianity, as it engages in community, it plays out in ways characterized by criticizing others and condemning others. Do you know what Amber did? Do you know about Frank? Rather than address concerns in love to one another, there are all sorts of conversations happening about others, about character deficits, about concerns with conduct, but they're not occurring with the person. A Christian community in sacrificing self, it does not criticize and condemn. It does not seek to put oneself in the, the, the place of creating laws or in the place of being judged. If we experience someone within the church engaging community this way, it raises the fraud alert. The way this person engages in community, rather than seeking to pursue peace, rather than seeking to pursue unity, their actions serve to crumble the congregation into factions and tribes. I've said before, as Protestants, we have to watch this. We break up into factions based on convictions about baptism or convictions about the end times or what persons should lead the church. Rather than unite, we use differences as rationale to divide. Now, now that doesn't mean we don't have deep discussions about differences, but how we engage in those discussions matters. Rather than adopt a mentality, you got to fight for your rights or for your convictions, we pursue unity. We pursue peace. We don't judge or accuse. We love. Next week, we're going to be baptizing a number of individuals, as Pastor Kyle mentioned. We're excited to do that. Now, to prepare for baptism, one of the verses we disciple those individuals into is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we were all baptized by one spirit, into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Here Paul identifies the spirit unites Christians as one. People from drastically different cultural backgrounds, religious backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, etc., etc., the unity that we have in Christ, it transcends dramatic differences. What unites us is not personal convictions or personal passions, but the work of Christ in our individual lives. When an individual is elevating personal passions, causing strife within the church, condemning others, not talking to others. It should trigger a fraud alert. This is not a voice reflecting wisdom from above.
Now, I got to tell you, there are people within First City Church who do not always share theological convictions or share our philosophy of ministry. But rather than fight or rather than withdraw, they choose to lay down those convictions to pursue peace. That's a, that's a remarkable thing. When I was a leader in the marketplace, uh, we, we talked about how team members would experience conflict they had with policies or practices or procedures or conflict they would have with our, our mission and vision as an organization or our mission and vision as a team. Some would fight. That was certainly a headache for me as a leader. Some, some would quit and leave when disgruntled. I mean, that was usually disappointing, not always, but usually. But perhaps the toughest response, when someone was disgruntled, rather than quit and leave, they would quit and stay. Meaning they were on the team, but, but they withdrew. They, they were disengaged. They were kind of on their own personal mission and vision. There was a lack of presence. That can happen in the church too. That, that's not the type of relating to others that James is calling us to when we encounter difference. Withdrawing, keeping community at a distance. He is calling us to be all in, to surrender self. Thank you to those of you that, that work to draw people together, that work to draw yourself in in the midst of differences rather than divide people apart. When people are able to cultivate unity and presence in the midst of significant differences rather, rather than break into parties, it works to authenticate the beauty of Christianity. Because authentic Christianity is not centered on self. It surrenders self. So we've seen how that demeanor is expressed in our inner disposition and how that inner conduct, how the inner disposition plays out in community. Now let's consider how it plays out in how we relate to God. The contrast that James draws us into here is experiencing strife in our relationship with God as opposed to surrender. In chapter 4, verse 2, extending to verse 5, James describes how a fraud alert is triggered as someone experiences strife. Their prayers are not answered because their prayers are focused on personal desires. James asserts, rather than befriend God, rather than him being the most prominent voice in their lives, they befriend the world. God is replaced by self or by the world. An enmity or strife with God is the end result. James then offers this in verse 6. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves 
before the Lord and he will exalt you. Surrender to God as expressed in in repentance. It serves to verify the identity of the person living out authentic Christianity. Because when confronted with pride, when confronted with self-interest, when confronted with a lack of gentleness or a lack of generosity or a lack of mercy towards others or a lack of surrender to the creator of the universe, a Christian repents. Rather than the broader culture being the thing that forms the individual, the the primary voice serving as authority is the voice of the Lord. In repentance... Christians are seeking to make less of self and more of the greatness and goodness of God. In Genesis 3, we learn how sin entered the world. And we we learn that one of the devil's tactics is to tell people who are made in God's image, you can be like God. You can choose what is right and what is wrong. The devil invites you and I to embrace arrogance and self-sufficiency, to boast of our skills and abilities. I'm better than everyone else. I don't need God. I can be my own maker. In embracing the identity of a victim, the devil invites us to believe that no one can challenge the power we have as someone who suffers. When we do not resist the devil, as James instructs us to do, we are prone to make much of self, to cultivate bitter envy and selfish ambition. James's instruction is therefore a call to reject independence and self-interest. That, that language, submit to God, submit, it's a, it's a tough word. Because it doesn't mean we do what God wants us to do when we feel like doing it. It means we do what God wants us to do when we don't feel like doing it. We surrender what we want to do. We sacrifice desires. John Newton, the late pastor and author of the great hymn, Amazing Grace, described the disposition of authentic Christianity this way. What you will, when you will, how you will. We surrender our will. We surrender self to the Lord. Now we should clarify that language, turn your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. It does not mean that you guys should never laugh. Okay, sometimes people in the church are far too serious, including the, the saints of First City Church. Some of us need to laugh more, myself included. But the concern here, sometimes we are too lighthearted or too casual as we consider how we relate to sin. I mean, sometimes we use the good news of the gospel not to reckon with our sin, but to justify our sin. That sinful sexual practice, that greed with my money, that lack of walking in obedience to my commitment to the church, grace covers that. I'm I'm forgiven. We embrace a casual attitude towards obedience. 
We misuse grace to do what we want to do. Such laughter, it needs to stop. That disposition, it's the opposite of submitting to God or cleansing ourselves before God. When we experience strife in our relationship with God, we do not experience sadness over sin as we should. We do not grieve our sin. We are not angry about it or how it breaks relationship with God and with others. And we are unwilling to cleanse ourselves from what captures our hearts. Hobbies, travel, the, the ways we spend money, particular ways we use social media, reading particular books, watching particular shows. But by the way, the, the content that we need to cleanse ourselves from, it, it can be licentious or conservative. I mean, Jordan Peterson is a smart man, but too much of his anger and contempt for culture is not good for your heart. As you seek to surrender self, what do you need to cleanse from your life to be more focused on Christ? So last week, Pastor Chris, in leading us to consider how authentic faith transforms, he talked to people who would identify as non-Christian. This morning, to you, I appeal. Perhaps one of the reasons you object to the Christian faith is because you have experienced Christianity in fraudulent forms. The Christianity of Christ is often not encountered in the Christian church. One of the biggest challenges you have with believing the validity of the Christian faith is not the testimony of Christ, but the testimony of Christians. Rather than Christians surrendering to Christ, they use Christianity to promote self-interest. Rather than Christian community demonstrating unity and peace in the midst of difference, individuals withdraw from one another. They quit and stay. They break up into factions. James affirms, yes, sadly, sometimes that is true. To you, he says, do not let the fraudulent forms of faith detract you from Christ. If the humility of Christ is attractive to you, if the way he sacrifices himself for others, the way he lays down his life, as we sang earlier, for people who do not deserve it, surrender to him. Learn from him. Follow him. As Eric read earlier or reminded us earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is recorded as saying, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want us to all see something here. This invitation to surrender self, it is, not, it is not an invitation divorced from considering self. But rather than an invitation to promote self or an invitation to pursue a personal platform or even an invitation to prove self, it is an invitation to find rest and healing and wholeness. And rather than an invitation to follow someone who is bold and brash, it is an invitation to follow someone with a humble heart. When we surrender to Christ, 
When we surrender to him, we encounter a savior who is lowly and humble, cool and calm. Here's author Dane Ortland. Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. Not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. In Jesus, we find a presence that offers rest and healing and wholeness. This means that James' instruction to resist the devil, to submit to God, to to draw near to God, to cleanse ourselves from what defiles us, you may see this as a rebuke. And, And for some of us, when you are running and rebelling, maybe it should simply be that. But for others, this instruction to submit to God to draw near to God. It is an invitation to set down how you are desperately trying to serve and preserve and protect yourself and how that is making you weary and exhausted. Jesus is inviting you in to greater surrender. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to validate yourself. He's inviting you into greater surrender to experience more healing and more wholeness. To the Christians in the room, this morning we need to consider, is the version of Christianity that we are offering to others more characterized by self-interest, envy, selfish ambition, a lack of empathy for others, strife, division, or gentleness? Pursuing peace, a calm internal demeanor, surrendering self. Are you offering the gospel or some inauthentic form of the gospel? When you think of someone who is wise and understanding within the Christian faith, what do you think of? What criteria would you list? The person who has a special knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, who rattles off lots of verses of the Bible, the individual expressing convictions courageously about theological issues like when Jesus will come back or the role of men and women in the church and in the home. Or, or, or maybe, maybe the, the version of authentic Christianity is the person who is happy and free of sorrow and sadness. Or is the picture of wise and understanding more consistent with the person described by James? Authentic Christianity is not centered on self. It surrenders self. It points to Christ. It points to his glory and his goodness. There are particular ways we live that point to our Savior. Gentleness, preserving unity, repentance. These characteristics point to our dependence in Christ and how Christ is forming us. When I sometimes ask people how they want to grow as a disciple of Jesus, rarely do I hear those things. Rarely do I hear, I want to I grow in gentleness, Pastor Paul. It makes me wonder how much of our culture has infected the way we live. 
confidence in self, standing up for your rights, rejecting authority, being who you want to be, being more bold. Church, may we be the type of people who are marked by repentance, a, a, per, a people marked by the gentleness and open arms of our Savior, a people who do not make much of ourselves, who do not self-promote and self-protect or work towards self-sufficiency. May we be a people who surrender to Christ. And as the text promises, may we find much grace. May we understand how God pours out his love on undeserving sinners like you and I. How he unites people with dramatic differences across the globe, throughout time, even within this room. May that grace transform us. Let's pray.